0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Carrie Weems Podcast. We're so glad to have you listening in today. Before Carrie joins us in today's episode, we want to remind you that the best way to keep up with all the latest content being released by Carrie is to follow her on social media. She's on Instagram and Twitter, so follow her at Carrie Weems, and you can also find her on Facebook as well. And even comment to let us know how much you're enjoying the podcast and the teaching that Carrie has been bringing to all of us. And don't forget, you can always visit carrieweems.com to learn more about her and to see a full list of the books, curriculums, and resources that she has recently released. Thanks again for being with us, and we really hope you enjoy today's podcast.
1: Hi, thanks for joining me again for the Carrie Weems podcast. I'm really excited to be continuing our series on emotional intelligence. And um, if you joined me last week, you know that we talked about self-regard as it, remo- as it uh, relates to emotional intelligence with our guest, Carrie Simpson. And if you missed that one, you really want to go back and check it out. And I gave out some worksheets to go with that podcast and they're still available in the link in my bio. Some worksheets on self-regard, how to build self-regard and if you don't have it, how to recognize it and get it. So um, make sure you go take that valuable resource and and work on it and look through it because you wanna use that to build upon for our topic today, which is emotional self-awareness. And I'm really pumped to have with us as our guest today, Pastor Bob Thayer. Thank you. Pastor Bob is, uh, he is over all of the pastoral care at our church, which is a really big job. There's a lot of care to be done and a lot of people to care for. But um, also you train our care partners and all of our pastoral staff, is that correct? Yes, ma'am. On uh, how to care for Mm -hmm. people. And so tell me a little bit of what that's like. What do you, what kinds of things do you train them on?
2: We have developed an eight-week training class that covers things like um, how to deal with feelings, how to listen well, mm-hmm. how to be process-oriented versus results-focused, oh, that's good. how to deal with um, boundaries in relationships, boundaries in, in life, So, and, and, and just how to be a, just a listen to people and, and to walk with them through the crisis of their lives.
1: Oh, I like that. What are some tips that you have about listening? This is a little off the roadmap, but... How to listen to people.
2: Probably one of the biggest things is just to shut your mouth and listen. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> and, simple. And, and, and that's, you know, that's one of the things we, in the class that we teach on that is, is the best thing to do is just to zip our lip, open our ears, mm-hmm. and ask questions that allow people to talk and then just hear what they have to say. And that most, is a
1: skill in itself Learning how to ask the right questions you right.
2: think. Most people, we, we assume people have a story, mm-hmm. and, and they, they just want someone to hear that story. Mm, and one good. of the greatest things we can do is just help them tell that story that's good. and interpret what that story is, and then maybe reinterpret it. That changes mm-hmm. their perspective. Can't mm-hmm. change the events, but we can change the interpretation in the story regarding that those events.
1: And we talked a little bit in, su- in a much more systematic way about Reinterpreting events through a different lens when we talked about the ABCDE worksheet, which is a little bit of cognitive therapy. Mm-hmm. But um, this is more systematic, a bigger, like a bit of a bigger picture, easier to use. But reframing really does help right. people sometimes make peace with some really hurtful things, right? right? And so I see that you got your master's from Michigan State.
2: Go right? Spartans.
1: Go Spartans. And uh, in marriage, I love, what is the word, what is the actual thing? Because I love this.
2: The actual degree is in, in family ecology with a specialization in marriage and family therapy.
1: What is family ecology for our listeners?
2: Family ecology is a way of looking at families in the context of their entire systems orientation. Mm-hmm. And, and um, people live in systems and things don't happen linearly, but they happen in, a, in a, an interactive environment. Mm-hmm. And, and so we view the world and we understand human experience from that interactional point of view as opposed to a linear, individualistic point of view. That's
1: good, and I think, do you feel like, do you wonder sometimes, um, I know this has been a, a struggle for me, and like I would say, a, really just a growth curve, a maturity curve for mm-hmm. me, understanding that um, other people are part of my story. It's not just about me, It's not. Right. I, I don't only affect me, I affect other people in the way I feel and react, and mm-hmm. I'm part of a bigger thing. And um, maybe yes. people sometimes don't recognize that,
2: so often people see themselves as isolated individuals without an awareness of their context. Both, yeah. both in the context of what's around them as well as what's come before them intergenerationally. Mm, that's so good. Because all of that interacts everything else today. So I am who I am not just because of my, myself and individually but the people I've grown up with and around me. Yeah.
1: yeah, I love that. I think sometimes too when we look at maybe role models and people that we you know, aspire to be like, maybe who are doing something well that we would like to also do, we don't recognize the systems that are around them, either mm-hmm. for support or maybe they don't have sometimes the commitments that we have in our lives, you know, right. Um, right. and so they have more capacity or they have more support so they can do the things they do. It's not always just about self-discipline and staying motivated. Sometimes there really right. is a contextual, significant contextual difference.
2: Absolutely, and so we're part of a system, and, and so our systems are part of other systems and the systems become systems. <laughs> it becomes real complex, but on the other hand, it is very easy to understand it. Yeah. Because as an individual, I'm a system, and then in my relationship with my, my wife, we're a system, we're a, we're a husband and wife system, and then we're a family system, mm-hmm. and then our families in, in the context of the church and, and our jobs and, and our extended families, and so all of that is interactive. Wow. And it has a huge impact on how we experience our lives in the world and who we have become and how we influence people behind us.
1: while we're talking about systems of family, tell us, um, you're married and you have just three children?
2: Three children. So adult children. Three five adult children five grandchildren.
1: And tell us, what is your wife's name?
2: My wife's name is Cheryl.
1: Cheryl. She's a really lovely person. We've been her.
2: married over 45 years.
1: So you have had a lot of opportunity to put your degree into practice? Yes,
2: and, and sometimes <laughs> that's the hardest place to do it. <laughs>
1: yeah, it is. Yes. you shouldn't have to act perfect around your family. You should be able Correct. to just do what you want. I think yes. that's kind of... One of the mistakes people make about relationships is that their their family is their time to like let it all hang out, mm-hmm. but really it's the most important place to practice your self discipline right. and your emotional awareness because yeah. it's the most precious mm-hmm. part of your yeah. life. Those are the most precious relationships that you want to last the longest and go with you you know right. till the end. So, in um, talking about systems, that could really seem overwhelming and really complex to people, but I want to take that down to if we can just become emotionally self aware, right? Mm-hmm. Then we can start to sort of Impact, if you want to say it, the system of our families or our system at work. If we're talking to leaders, being emotionally aware of what you're feeling and also how you're impacting others, you can start to impact that system. Correct. Just from an individual change, is that right? Yes,
2: because when when I change, I change the, I interact with my system differently, mm-hmm. and the system then cha- reacts to my changes.
1: Yes, it adapts to it, fit it, your exactly. change.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And so, so uh, to make. Describe the system a little bit more, more definitively. Really, the system that we, we operate in are really emotional systems.
1: Ah, that's good. And
2: so there's a fuel that drives behavior in those systems, and that fuel is anxiety.
1: Ah. And, that's, and okay, the fuel is anxiety. Yes. Okay, you're going to talk about what causes the anxiety? Or is it just a general, this that's is here?
2: It's g- a general term that, that kind of encompasses all of our emotional experiences. Okay. But when anxiety goes up, Relationships and, and behavior that is driven by that anxiety. That's good. And and so the higher the anxiety, the more more adaptive people have to become, or the more dysfunctional they become.
1: Okay, because Beca- they can dig their heels into an old system, maybe. Right. And insist that the, that it continue that way. Is that right. how they it can yes. become dysfunctional?
2: A system has a, a, a status quo, a homeostatic, mm-hmm. regulated way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And, and it forces the participants in that system to function within that certain range of behavior. Yeah. And if they try to do something different than that, then the system's gonna react to try to conform them back. Okay. Because it doesn't like change.
1: Yes, okay. It
2: likes stability.
1: Right. So if you interject a new, like say in a work situation, if you interject a new process, a way of doing something that people are quite familiar with, mm-hmm the people will push back against that, not because they don't like necessarily the, thing you're, the new thing you're using, but because it's just nature of the system itself to resist change. You almost have to stop the momentum of the current system.
2: Yes, and it's not really about the change, but it's how the people perceive the change mm-hmm. and experience the change. Because that change may be a threat, it may, be, it may create a sense of insecurity, fear, mm-hmm. It may, may, you know, all of those emotional flavors yeah. that then people react to those those emotional perspectives.
1: And it's creating that fuel. Exactly. it's cre- All of that together right. creates this general undercurrent of anxiety. So I'd love to talk about a little bit, even though this is a little off topic, what can leaders do when they know they're implementing change, they know they're about to head into a season of change and they're going to have to, especially people that, you know, it's not the head, the top dog in the organization, but you're in the middle and you mm-hmm. know that you're getting you know, you're getting the memo, you're get, you've you been in meetings, you know you're going to have to implement change to the people that are your team that's serving underneath you. And um, how do you prepare people for that change? What are some real practical things we can do? Like you said, it's not so much the change itself as how people feel about the change.
2: Right. What can right. we as
1: leaders do to help people be more receptive and less anxious?
2: Well, I think the leader has to be aware of their own emotional experience mm-hmm. in light of what the directives are, mm-hmm. how they interpret, experience it, and then how they... Translate that to their team. Okay. Because my reaction to what I'm hearing may be defensive, it may be resistant, it may be whatever, Mm -hmm. which is an emotional reaction. Yes. And then that gets communicated to my team.
1: So, what if, let me put this um, situation out there. What if you're um, a leader who is receiving some information about an upcoming change and you are generally feel positive about it, but your team may not feel positive about it. So what, how can we use that to help set them up to react more positively or to receive it?
2: I, I think part of the process becomes a conversation with people about how they're experiencing the change, okay. as opposed to just coming in and saying, hey, we're making this change, deal with it, suck it up, and get on with things. Yeah, Because then that basically communicates a lot of disrespect mm-hmm. and, and ignores what people are experiencing
1: and that's real to them whether Absolutely. you can't say well you sh- you know you should have more trust than this or you should be more on the team than this or you should be right. because their reality is still their reality so you have to acknowledge it
2: and can we give people an opportunity to ask questions can mm-hmm. we and express their concerns ex- and ask about their, un- their 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 perspectives about it and mm-hmm. what the implication is going to be for them personally mm-hmm. because people people filter things through even if it's a corporate environment they filter it through a personal What's this gonna cost me? What's this going to, how's this gonna affect me? What's this gonna require of me to do differently?
1: Yes, and I think, like you said, they still bring their personal filters mm-hmm. to the office. You can't take out, you can't separate yourself from your childhood or your right. formative experiences and they necessarily have to follow you into any workplace. And so if change was a really negative thing growing up and you're in a high change environment, it could be unduly stressful
2: mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. you, right? And, and, you know, many times people's reactions to something in the present might not be the issue at hand. Yeah, It may be the overflow or the culmination of several other things that happened mm-hmm. several elsewhere yes. that are now just showing up or that are, they got to a point of overload mm-hmm. and they're reacting yeah. at this point, and that was the cause.
1: Yes, and it's like seeping out. It's almost in a very, you know, uh, very, very uh, reduced way or minimized, what minimal way like PTSD. Mm-hmm. It's your past intruding into your present and you're not really looking at the root of it is something back here, but it's affecting relationships out here.
2: Well, it's the whole idea of how do we manage our emotions do we stuff them or do we express them in appropriate ways? Yeah and when we stuff them when we when we fail to recognize them and we do you know we, we deny, we suppress, we stuff them to use mm-hmm. that generic word, mm-hmm. they go underground. yeah and when we push too much underground, it, it begins to seep, the words that you described. Yeah. And it goes over here and it finds a place of weakness. Mm,
1: that's good. And then it
2: comes up over here.
1: That's good, that's a good way to think of it. So we, we don't wanna, and that's part of what emotional self-awareness is about, mm-hmm. is learning to fully ex- experience your emotions and express them in a, in a healthy way. And to people out there who are, you're, you're, a, you're a natural feeler. Your emotions are very, very accessible to you. And you might be going, what in the world? Like, How do people not know what they're feeling? But some people really are not aware of their own emotions. And I, I would say that I was one of those people for a very long time. I'm not. I'm naturally inclined to be more stoic. And that some of my formative experiences amplified that natural sure. tendency. But um, what are some reasons that people might not be aware of their own emotions? I, as it might take them a while to step back and go, oh, wow, I really feel bad about that. But, you know, it was two days ago. So. Sure,
2: sure. I, I would uh, kind of... Address the assumption in that question, mm-hmm. and that is some people don't experience or can't experience their feelings. Mm-hmm. I think everyone does. Mm-hmm. But it may be for a microscopic moment. Yes. Or it may be an, an extended way. But they but they've learned to deal with those things in a way that, that appears like they don't recognize them. Yes. But they do recognize them and they just automatically know that if this fear comes up, I gotta push it away. Yes. And and so it it's a, a matter of being able to say, okay, stepping back and just saying, okay, what am I feeling and thinking about right now? Yeah. And and so when others are in chaos around me, how can I be more thoughtful instead mm-hmm. of reactive?
1: Yes, and I love that you said people will sometimes say, oh yeah, I'm not emotional, I don't really experience emotions, but the truth is we all experience emotions mm-hmm. and we react to them differently and it might have just become over so much time right. that your experience is a really small window and your reaction is to to try to ignore it as much as possible.
2: right? Or to just let it be expressed in a, in a very inappropriate way that has significant damage. Yes. But, but going back to, to the, the other question was, sometimes we're, we're not able to, to acknowledge our feelings because of past experiences we've had.
1: Yeah.
2: Where, you know, in a case where I was upset, you know, as a child was upset and a child was hurt, yes. a child was feeling whatever, and then a, then a very harsh parent said, just stop crying and get on with things.
1: Yeah, oh, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Bingo.
2: <laughs> but I think we've all heard that at some sure. way or another. In, in <laughs> and that.
1: maybe said it and regretted it. <laughs>
2: exactly, and so, so then that child says, okay, it's not safe for me to let my pain or let someone know that I'm feeling afraid yes. out. So in that moment, when they, you know, two years later, five years later, mm-hmm. 10 years later, as an adult, yeah. something threatens them and they feel fear, they gotta stuff it because they know that it, they learned and their automatic reaction is, Don't acknowledge it because it's gonna cost you.
1: Now, this is something that um, in my my early 20s was a real habit for me. Something negative would happen, but at the moment, I wouldn't interpret it as negative. I would Mm -hmm. just think of it as a negotiation or a, oh, we're talking about this, but then maybe two or three days later, I would be angry about it or I would be, I would say, you know, that really wasn't right. That person took advantage of me, but at the time, It was. I was vaguely aware that something wasn't right, but I couldn't put my my finger on it. I couldn't identify it. Right. So, what would you call that? Like just experiencing that emotion in in a delayed way.
2: That's probably a healthy. It's not a bad thing. Okay. It's it's just a process that takes. Sometimes, you know, things happen to us and we don't immediately recognize the significance of it. Yeah. And so, then it may take us a day or two, or a week or two, or even a year
1: to process to
2: process things. And so. But it's being able to say, okay, let's go back and look mm-hmm. and, and be honest about things and be able to describe it what it was.
1: Yeah, and, and and then what if you take so long to process something that you really can't go back and do anything about, like it would be inappropriate to bring it back up. Sure. It would only cause more conflict. How could you sort of make peace with that?
2: That becomes a, an interpersonal decision you have to make. Mm-hmm. You know, for instance, if a person's been offended or was Situation where that a person maybe passed away, yeah, and they can't go back and ask forgiveness mm-hmm. or ex- ask forgiveness or or whatever, or give and forgiveness, give forgiveness, right? Exactly, and so so then that becomes a matter of how can that person internally come to grips with that, yeah. and, and for themselves and in their relationship with their heavenly Father.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so, what are some ways that people could, if someone was sitting here telling you, you know, my last words with my father were. Conflict and now I so wish I could go back and you know just reconcile with him, but he's he's passed away. Mm-hmm. How would you help them deal with that?
2: i, I think maybe sitting down you know there's a couple of ways you can just visualize that conversation and then then recreating that conversation and saying to him what you really wanted to say. Mm-hmm. It may be writing a letter,
1: yeah
2: and then then either burning it or or you know there's some very there's some very something practical, concrete something very very symbolic yes that would allow you to say those things. In, in in a way that you wanted to say them but you couldn't or didn't.
1: And that could just be different for every person. Absolutely. Depending on what kind of person absolutely they are, what's important to them.
2: And so men are gonna deal with their feelings differently than women do. Yeah. I, I would argue that we all have the same feelings. Yes. But we've been we've been trained and we've been socialized as boys and girls, men and women, to deal with our emotions differently.
1: Now that's that's an interesting point because it's very um politically incorrect to say that men and women are different emotional creatures these days. I understand but that. the truth is, I mean, if we were just saying honestly, we are very emotionally different. It doesn't mean that women can't be good leaders. It doesn't mean that men can't be nurturers. But emotionally, there's a different wiring there that is actually biological in nature With Brain chem, like brain structure sure. and you know sure. down to like how the membranes are connected and between the two spheres of the brain, which I won't get into, but there is there are physical biological reasons, structural reasons that we communicate and feel emotions and process them in a different, not feel different emotions, but process them yes. a little bit differently. So, um, what role do you, I mean? How would you describe that difference, or what role would you say that that plays?
2: There's there's differences. Just as you described, mm-hmm. and there's differences in how we're socialized as well, mm-hmm. fundamentally. Yes. And and so, the the um, the process becomes one of men become much more tend to be more quiet and reserved and non expressive.
1: Yeah.
2: By by in typically, mm-hmm. women are perceived to be much more emotive and much more verbal, mm-hmm. which may not always be the case. Yeah. Because you can you can argue that there's both ways. Yeah. But it's being able to say okay. How can we help a person kind of express that yeah. in a way that, that's, that, that's authentic for them?
1: Yes, and that doesn't necessarily mean if you're a man, then for you to be walking in total freedom now means that you have to be emotional and super, but, and, but you right. do need to maybe, what, I love that you said it's authentic. You're not stuffing anymore, Right. but you're also using your emotions and comfortable with them in a way that is authentic
2: for you. I would argue that many men feel fear. Mm-hmm but they can't allow themselves to show that okay. because they would be perceived to be unmanly. Wow. Because yeah. we were grown up that says, you got hit with a baseball pitch, don't cry. <laughs> be a Pick man. Pick up some dirt, rub a little dirt on it, and you'll be fine.
1: That's like the expression, man up.
2: That's right, that's right. But that, that little boy, that 12 year old boy that just got hit by with a 70 mile an hour sa- fastball mm-hmm. is, is gonna get back in the batter's box and have a little bit of fear. Yeah. He's gonna get hurt and hit again. And, and so, but, but he's gotta act tough. And then that gets translated and it gets reinforced by the, the the male culture. Yeah. And then when he gets into a relationship with a woman, he's gotta be tough and he can't be tender.
1: Wow, what a great, uh, just a lot of stuff to think about, a lot of good wisdom and a lot of things to put into action. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I I did. And um, we're going to have Bob back again next week and continue this conversation on emotional self-awareness. But in the meantime, I hope that you will go to the link in my bio and download um, the worksheets on self-regard if you haven't already. And um, if you haven't listened to the uh, the first few podcasts about emotional intelligence, I really encourage you to do that because it is a skill you can learn that will really impact your work relationships and your family relationships and really you um, for the better. And so I hope you enjoyed today. Thanks for joining me and I will see you again next week.
0: Hey, thanks again for joining us here at the Carrie Weems Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to share it with your friends and followers on social media. And don't forget, one of the best ways you can help us get the word out is to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. It's a simple and easy way that you can help us spread the word about the great teaching that Carrie has been sharing. Plus, if you would like Carrie to answer one of your questions in an upcoming episode, we would love to hear them. All you have to do is email them to us at info at Don't forget to follow on social media to stay up to date on all the latest resources that are releasing on Instagram and Twitter at Carrie Weems, or you can find Carrie on Facebook as well. And of course, for a full list of all the available books and resources, just visit kerryweems.com. Once again, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.